0: Comics. Screw it,
1: screw it. Hello, and welcome to Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. The only podcast in human history that has two brothers. Uh, I'm one of those two brothers. Uh, oh. My name is Will Hines, and I am the other only brother in the world. We're the only two brothers <laughs> in the world. That's I'm right. Kevin Hines. Yeah. And we're both fans of comic books, and we do this. We use this podcast to talk about them. We're also comedians, ish. Uh, I mean, we're kind of funny, and um, we've yeah, done yeah. stuff at the UCB Theater and other places. And um, yeah, we use this podcast to indulge ourselves to talk about comics that we love, and we also occasionally use this podcast to interview people so they can talk about comics they love, and that's what we're doing on this episode.
2: Yeah, we're today we're welcoming Alex Segura. Uh, he is a comic book editor, a, a novelist, a comic book writer. Yeah. Um, he kind of does a lot of stuff. He uh, currently works at Oni for Oni Comics. Uh, he has worked for Archie. He's worked for DC. Uh, he's written a bunch of mystery novels. He did a series, uh, the Pete Fernandez series, which is five books uh, about a Miami detective. He's he wrote a novel about Poe Dameron, the Star Wars uh, character pilot, hotshot pilot. He's done it all, man. This guy is uh, busy. He's busy. He's really prolific. Uh, he's passionate
1: but about. Also, he listens to our podcast, and that's probably the most important <laughs> thing about him. <laughs> yeah, he's a fan he of. Time. He's a fan of this podcast, and he has promoted us, and we like his stuff, and we like him, so we were excited to have him on and to talk about he's uh, um, to talk about his relationship to comics. It's interesting to me because he has written some comics. He's written some Archie comics and some other characters, but he's also been an editor. And he's been on kind of like the corporate suit side. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like publicity and working behind the scenes. And um, I think that's kind of interesting that somebody has been both on the creative side and on the sort of like corporate side. Yeah. I mean, he's he's done so many different things. He, he I guess uh, in this interview, he talks about he
2: worked for Wizard and for Newsarama. So he's also done sort of the like the fan writing in, side. The journalist side kind of. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy how much stuff he's done.
1: Uh, I assume he is a hundred years old. He's covering so much stuff. We didn't ask him, him, but I assume that he's, he's probably that much. I hope he's that old because I, I I need time to catch up with him. I think because he's both a, like, I don't know how to put this, like a day job guy and a journalist guy, as well as a writer guy. He's articulate in talking about like what he likes about stories and, and what he thinks about them. I just say that because there's a lot of people who are brilliant um, creators who maybe are not so good at talking about it. Like, uh, certainly in the world of musicians, there's people who are brilliant musicians and songwriters. And then you ask them to talk about the song. They're like, uh, I just did it, yeah. uh, which is understandable. But, it, you know, he's a, he's a good gabber, uh, which I which I appreciate.
2: Yeah. Uh, we asked him to pick a comic to talk about, which we do with a lot of our guests. He picked Amazing Spider-Man 350 by David Michelinie and Eric Larson. This is where Spider-Man takes on Dr. Doom. Mm -hmm. Uh, to protect uh, an old thief man named the Black Fox, who I often get confused with the Ditko cat burglar character, but it is not that character.
1: I thought it was going to be that guy too, who time also is retconned into being Felicia Hardy's dad, right? Uh, The cat burglar? I I believe so. I I think the old black cat of the, uh, the cat burglar in the Ditko story is retconned to be an older black cat, sort of. I think the Black Fox maybe is retconned into being uh, her mentor too. All the cat burglars know each other. Anyway, so we talk about this issue and this is an issue where it's special to him because he read it when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got sentimental value to him. But it's Weird also- for a hundred year old guy to read that comic when he was a kid, but I'm not going to question it. Well, I think he's a time traveler also. Okay, that, that checks. It also is a pretty pretty good issue, I would say. Yeah, I think it's really fun. It's not one I've
2: read before or had read before this interview. Uh, I just have gaps in my Larson and McFarlane era Spidey. I think the art is really, really fun. It's it's better art than what we saw in the earlier uh, Eric Larson issues we've covered. It's still got that same energy
1: and excitement. I don't know.
2: It was a blast.
1: Yeah, it's a really fun issue.
2: It's Alex- on Marvel Unlimited. So if, you're, if you've are if got that, you can follow along or, or if you've got the copy follow yep. along we, we sort of talk about it
1: very scattershot style right uh we don't do our page by page approach here we we just we just kind of jump all over the place uh, we also jump around alex has it has a tenure at archie comics which i thought was interesting we talk a little bit about archie mm-hmm. we could and- have taken any
2: aspect of alex's career and spent the whole podcast talking about that and gotten really? some real good stuff instead we sort of just rush by everything real fast and get just a it's a it's a taster's menu of alex sagura
1: the buffet of Alex Segura, we just kind of ran up and we grabbed a handful of um, uh, roasted potatoes with one fist, and then ran over here and grabbed a couple pieces of shrimp, and then mm-hmm. just shoved both our hands in the macaroni and cheese vat. Um, and we didn't gorge ourselves in any one portion of them, but we sampled we sampled a lot of it. So yeah, listen to that interview, people. So here it comes. Here's the interview with Alex Segura. <laughs>
2: Uh, so we're here with Alex. Thanks for joining us.
0: I'm happy to be here. I'm a long-time listener.
2: <laughs> yeah. How long? Uh, How long? Yeah.
0: Since the beginning. OG oh. uh, first, first episode. Comments. Yeah.
1: Great. Okay, we're going to quiz you. Uh, we we've a series of quiz. questions <laughs> about our past episodes. Yeah. In minute 7 of episode 23, Dr. Uh, Doom. Oh, you're right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. okay. real wow. Probably,
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Um so yes yeah, so, so thank you for listening thanks for being a fan thanks for being uh, a guest uh, it's awesome so so uh we're going to start by talking about how you got into comics like what age uh or what were your first comics that sort of thing so let's start there uh what were the first comics you remember reading That like really got you that you're like, oh, I want to get more of these.
0: The first comic I remember picking up was a Betty and Veronica digest at the grocery store. I think I was like six, five or six. And um, I think my mom got it because I was under the weather. And so she bought a bunch of digests. And that was my first introduction as an early reader and kind of getting into the language of comics. And I think I really liked it because they were funny. You know, the Archie strips are funny, but also it was very an idyllic world and i'm i'm from miami and there's no seasons there so it was neat to see like this like new england idealized Mm -hmm. world where everyone was friends and you know it was just um, uh and it's very sitcom humor as people as you know like it's not there was no continuity so i didn't really you could read a strip and put the book down and you wouldn't miss anything, and but my first superhero comic was um, I got it also at a at an extra supermarket with my grandparents, and I don't think they knew what they were buying me because the content was definitely not for a five year old. But um, <laughs> it was a reprint of Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number two, which was a weird magazine size sister to Amazing Spider-Man in the seventies. That was black and white at first. And I think, you know, it's John Romita and it's Stan Lee and it's basically the return of the green, the original Green Goblin who had been experiencing amnesia at the time. And I just remember being terrified by how Romita and Romita is like a beautiful artist. Everyone looks beautiful. And maybe that was an easy shift from Archie to John Romita, Spider-Man. Everyone looks perfect. Um, yeah, but he also drew a terrifying Norman Osborn, you know, like where he's sweating, beads of sweat rolling down his face and like eyes bulging out, like as he's realizing he's the Green Goblin, like he's watching a movie. I think I think they're watching a – of course, Spider-Man's like, let's watch a documentary about the Green Goblin with Norman Osborn. <laughs> smart, <laughs> yeah. smart choice. Yeah. <laughs> and so that that shockingly triggers like uh, some, some latent memories and he then becomes the Green Goblin. But that was my first um, action comic and that was um, – Spider-Man then became my guy. Like, I was like, this this is cool because it felt... There is a through line between Archie and Peter Parker, I think, and this kind of everyman, um, hard luck uh, protagonist. And, I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but I felt some comfort with Peter Parker. And then, um, so I was an Archie reader for a while as a kid. And then I think at that point, you really graduated at a certain time to the action stuff. And that's when I started picking up things like X-Men. I was a Marvel kid at first, and then... For some reason, I got my hands on a Flash, the greatest Flash stories ever told collection early on. And yeah. so Flash kind of became my DC character. That's interesting.
2: Flash feels like a lot of people's, uh, he's kind of my entryway too, I think, because of the TV show.
0: Yes, was yeah, the John some, Wesley shipster. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was reading some DC stuff, but I, I really liked The Flash. And it was because of the TV show that I started looking for his comics and reading his comics. And I was like, wow, these are great. Yeah, and I also think of the Flash as like one of, if not me, my favorite uh, DC characters.
0: But I hear that a lot from people. I know it's like Tom. I think River part of is it is as, as, as a kid, the power is so cool. Like every yeah, kid wants yeah. to run really fast. Like I always wanted. I was not a great runner, but I always wanted to be the fastest. Or you want to run fast. And um, yeah, I think it was the '90s show. That's a great point. I'd forgotten that. Sh- I mean, I love that show because yeah. I think the
1: Flash were so also- starved. for like good tea for superhero stuff on tv or whatever yeah Yeah, there wasn't a lot of it it's also he's got a
2: cool costume and i think the simplicity of the power even beyond just that it's a cool power it's like he runs there's no more questions
1: (laughs) i associate (laughs) the flash with like old guys he's someone who's been around long enough that he is in the popular consciousness beyond like superhero fans he's basically as old if you count all of his incarnations as superman essentially and he's one of the ones that like I don't know, like some old guy in your office would be like, oh, who are you, the Flash?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Slow like, down, Flash.
1: Yeah. It's
2: a it's nice, like, simple name, too. It's a very, like Green Lantern, it's like, what's his deal? Oh, he makes light projection objects. It's, like, it's based why on is
0: willpower.
1: Uh,
2: yeah. The Flash, I bet he runs.
0: <laughs> you could yeah, probably he, guess that. And seeing it also now through the prism of my son who's into superheroes, like the, it's a simple concept that resonate like the flash he runs like you said he runs fast. green lantern yeah it takes a little more explaining or nightwing like oh he used to be robin and then it's like (laughs) why why is he not robin anymore and i think there's a lot to be said for i don't know if you guys related to this but other doorways into comics like i got really into the marvel trading cards and that opened up a lot of like the series the first two series like i remember you know just being intrigued by these different teams like there was X Factor and I was like well these are the original X-Men why are they not the X-Men anymore and that just kind of pulls you into the rabbit hole and then that introduces you to a lot of stuff quickly Um, those
2: cards were huge for a couple years I feel like I I feel like I was I've been reading long enough that I don't think those grabbed me but I do remember them in all the shops and a lot of people I knew collected those those are like early 90s like 90 yeah like
0: 92 yeah yeah I just didn't have the budget to be buying all the comics. Like, uh, I'm not saying that you did. I'm just saying, you know, like, the. No, you are. I, you're calling yeah, Kevin, you're yeah. calling Kevin you're, old you're money rich. bags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well,
2: yeah. well I had the benefit of both Will and my uh, allowances going to comics. So I could double my reading by just not buying what he was getting.
0: <laughs> did you guys ever conflict? Like, were there just books that Will, you read that I think Kevin. We chose
2: did? not to, I think. We sort of yeah. recognized it. If Will was buying something, oh. I I wasn't going to. I was. I let will, will. had first pick of everything, and then I bought the other things that I wanted. At first, I think I just wanted something because I started with uh, the Hulk and Marvel Team Up uh, were the first two books I think I had on my pull list. But then there were definitely See, That was time like my for, new fly
0: list. Yeah, I hated Team Up books as a kid.
2: I, it was just I, I will got the other Spider Man books. That was the one where right. I didn't get. I also started getting it issue. I think one forty nine was the first one on my pull list was which was the second to last issue. Of Marvel oh, yeah. team up. Actually, I didn't know at the time. Like when I was like, "All right, here comes the next issue," and it, it was a good issue.
1: Yeah, <laughs> let me, I was like, uh, let me check out. Let's check out the Sopranos. What's this diner episode? they're <laughs> <Yeah. one?
0: laughs> Oh, I love the song.
1: Yeah, uh, so I started going to web, and i definitely there was times where Will
2: dropped buying books, and I started picking them up because I was like, "Well, I still, I'm still into this one."
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, so there, there was some of that going on. There are definitely books that I read that Will didn't, and vice versa, though, for sure.
0: And I remember, uh, I remember a lot of, at the time, <clears throat> I guess I was 11 or 12, Marvel had a lot of reprint titles. So they would be running like Marvel Tales, which would be reprinting Amazing Spider-Man and Classic X-Men, which would be what, reprinting.
1: Um, what era are we talking about? So it sounds like early 90s.
0: I yeah, guess. early 90s. So it was so, kind of the tail end of the Claremont run on X-Men.
1: So, okay, here's a weird question. Like, what what is that era? Like, Kevin and I are, for us, it's like mid-80s or even early 80s is kind of like our entry into comics so it's sort of like shooter era secret wars era um the beginning of direct market comic book shop in you know um directed mm-hmm. titles um and, and in a weird way it was sort of like the I don't know what you call it but like the children of the 60s were doing comics when we started the people who were kids for ditko and kirby right were making comics in the 80s but what are the well, how do we characterize the 90s this is the McFarlane era, the image era. I'm, yeah, I'm it guess- is. The I'm image guessing. Era, is, yeah. is that right? Or I mean, like, I think you, your era is kind of. I the stopped tail reading end of comics in 1986 Age. and I haven't read a single one since. <laughs> Just Not a one. About so, it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, tell me, educate me on what's the early 90s.
0: Yeah, I would say that I guess your era is like the tail end of the Bronze Age and then we. Then we get into kind of the post-crisis period that leads, right? I would, yeah, the image, it's safe to call it the image era. That's, it was a game, that was a game-changing moment of the early 90s. Like all your favorite artists moved over. For me, I was a big Jim Lee fan um, and Eric Larson fan. So that, that was intense. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think it's safe to call it the image era.
2: It was also like the first, maybe not, not, probably not the first, because it's probably been going on since the 60s, but it felt like the first like where, uh, consumerism, where it was like variant covers, bagged comics. It was like flash, uh, not lowercase f, flash, first <laughs> story, second almost. It was like one of the few times where it felt like the writers were secondary to the artists or to the idea. Like it's like the death of
0: Superman. Who's writing it? No one cares. <laughs> yeah, he's dying. Um, um, I just remember even then being baffled by that whole pre-bagged or like, it was. It was. I think it was before CGC grading, where you literally like slab your comic and put it in a vault somewhere. But um, the idea that oh, you don't want to take it out of the bag, it's going to get messed up. And my thought was always like, well, I want to read it. Like I, yeah, want to, no, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll buy two if I have to. But it just seem yeah. really counterproductive. And I think that proved itself out. Just that they they printed so many of certain issues that yeah. they're, it's not like they're worth hundreds of dollars now.
2: There are definitely people now who still like buy two copies. And like they for one for reading or just buy them and don't read them. And I'm just like, comics aren't good enough with investments if you're not reading them. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I feel like that point has been proven out. Like unless you have Amazing Spider-Man number one or FF number one or really like iconic issues that were not part of that collector mentality, like you're not going to make what's a the
1: um? What's the most recent, very valuable comic, right? Obviously, the very old ones, Action Comics. Amazing fantasy. Those are valuable. I mean, is he, is even giant size X Men valuable?
0: I think so. Yeah, I think so. I but think like What are we talking? Like thousands? Seventy five? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say I wouldn't be surprised if that's in the thousands. I, I definitely don't keep up with that part of yeah. the industry, but I think
1: that's why we brought you on. We yeah, want to for, sell you. a
0: yeah. <laughs> Pitch to make.
1: Um, like I bet you the first issue of Teenage Ninja Turtles is something. Yeah. Uh, that's um, mid eighties. That wonder- also had a very small print run. Yeah. So it's like it came out of nowhere and then was huge. So I bet you there's something there. I just I do think of the early 90s as the end of the collector era, like that kind of fell apart. And then people were sort of on to that as a dumb thing.
0: Yeah, because like, I mean, X-Men number one, the Jim Lee X-Men sold millions of copies. So that means there's like millions in circulation, which will by default bring down the value. I yeah, think stuff like-, like can find it anywhere. And uh, like something like Gambit's first appearance might be worth a little more because it's it's just you wouldn't expect it. do It's yeah, usually it the characters. You don't expect these characters to be huge and then they become big deals. And But once the print runs started skyrocketing, it just that's going to devalue it long term. So it looks like
2: Giant Size X-Men, Will, is worth only about about 100000 it looks like. And it looks like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles... Uh, this is 1988 is the last thing. I don't know. Um, uh, yes, yeah, I think like
1: this whole era like kind 20, 000,
2: of... 20000 uh, Yeah. It looks less. $20,000. But again, these are not up-to-date prices.
1: I'm I wonder what's like spawn quick.
0: number one, because I know the print run was really high, but that feels like...
1: I love Spawn, number one. <laughs> anyway, so like the era you're in, I think is sort of it's a it's a peak of some kind. I think it was like comics were hugely popular just in terms of numbers like never before. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole like spe- you know collector side of it was being exploited by the publishers to try to get the kids to spend more money, and that. But this is and like Kevin was saying, maybe it's artists first, or at least like kind of marketing first, perhaps.
0: Very um, yeah, yeah event driven.
1: Right. Right. Um, which you still
0: see today I, I think you still see i mean everything. still I,
2: I, I, yeah it's definitely still event driven it feels more story an event versus like like it, it, just based on the idea that like in the 90s it felt like the cover would sell you the comic because you knew like oh that guy drew this issue and if you like got a mcfarland cover and you open it up and it wasn't mcfarland on the inside you'd be like ah oh, that's a ripoff. now yeah covers never match the inside
0: and often they don't match the story. Like sometimes it's just right. an iconic shot of like Thor yeah. and you're like, well, he's not even in this comic. Like it's just like a variant thing that they're doing across the line. Which- right, right,
2: right. Yeah, uh, it definitely, now it feels more like this ties into Venom's King Null storyline. That's the selling point. Uh, right. Event after event after event. I mean, Marvel had three, uh, New York City got destroyed three times in a row, I think, this year. <laughs>
0: rough uh, and I, was, I was like reading some of
2: those comics and I was like, people are really freaking out about this. Isn't it just normal?
0: <laughs> Why are they- Yeah. I think that's something like Astro city did really well. Like this town that's just used to like superhero battles and yeah. things going on. Yeah. And just like, this is just like white noise in the background.
2: <laughs> what was your local comic shop? What was your first, what was your comic shop like?
0: There was a shop down the street from my grandparents' house in Miami called Frank's comics and cards. And it was, I guess it was like your typical idea of what a comic shop is. It was this very small space in a strip mall it was very rarely full like it was usually this one long-haired dude behind the counter who (laughs) was not not into customer service at all but i found a lot of random stuff i'd go in with like 20 bucks or 10 bucks and uh i got into backlist titles like justice league international was one of my favorites and uh i got really into daredevil was my marvel thing for a while and a lot of older spider-man stuff i was an obsessive spider-man reader that was my thing and if I shifted away from Spider Man, I would probably sh- I'd shift over to X Men. Um, I was not an Avengers kid or a Hulk kid.
1: So when did you start moving into professional aspirations? How did that happen?
0: I think early on, even as a reader, as a kid, just reading comics, I I understood the credits and I kind of had an idea of what an editor did. So I'd almost do like my own fantasy football editing, like, wouldn't it be cool if John Byrne took over Spider-Man and rebooted him? Like I had that. I mean, I'm not saying it was a unique idea, but I was like, wouldn't it be cool? And then eventually he did, which was bizarre. But um, I always, I wanted to be an artist as a kid. So I would, I read how to draw comics the Marvel way and things like that. And I I eventually gave up the art side of it before high school. I would always write stories. I had a long prose story where I was talking about X Factor, where X Factor came back and battled the X Men to kind of reclaim the, the mantle of being the X Men. <laughs> and this was in elementary school, I think. And so pretty um, early, but, yeah. And so in college, I was into journal. I was a journalism student, or I was an English lit major, and then I did journalism as uh, my activity in school. And um, I thought that was going to be my career, being a journalist. I got my first gig at the Miami Herald freelance or part-time. And I reached out to this guy, Mike Duran, who runs, still runs Newsarama, which is one of the, the top comic websites. And He still just, runs it? He still runs it, yeah. He's Don't still mean to interrupt you. That's crazy. Yeah, 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 He's still there, still there. I just feel
2: like those sites get, have had such turnover the last few years. That's impressive. He's,
0: yeah, he left briefly, I think, to work at Marvel to be their PR person for a year and then came back. So mm-hmm. this will really date me. I, I sent him a blind... AIM, AOL, Instant Messenger message. <laughs> no. And I said, hey, I like comics and I like journalism. Can I write comic book journalism for Newsarama? And that kind of got me started. And so I did freelance stuff for Newsarama for Mike and and Matt Brady, who, who doesn't work at the site anymore, but is still kind of involved in comics in some way. He does a lot of Rick and Morty stuff. And then that's how I got started in the industry, just freelance from... From home, I was interviewing creators. I think the first talent I interviewed was Peter David about Young Justice, and Ed, Br- Ed Brubaker about Sleeper or Point Blank, which was like the setup before right, yeah. Sleeper. And Jimmy Palmiotti about a book called The Resistance, which was a, an early Wildstorm book. And so I was, I think, because I had a journalism background, I could meet deadlines and I could write quickly. And then I, I was really into Wizard Magazine. I think now we're starting to kind of reassess how powerful wizard was at the time but wizard was a really huge influence in comics like if you got a wizard cover your book was going to sell more and um so i think i bought wizard mainly to kind of understand what was going on with the industry because i couldn't buy all the comics so i'd buy wizard and kind of get a sense of what was happening and and they really built up people you know jim jim lee rob liefeld like all the big image creators got a lot of real estate in wizard because it was a cool story
2: early wizard was pretty good i also They used to do a thing where they had like a page for indie unknown comics. And I discovered a lot of stuff through wizard, like despite the fact that wizard was very much a mainstream. mainstream, Yeah. yeah. Very mainstream. That's where I learned about Kane by Paul Grist. That's where I learned Skeleton Key by Andy Watson. And then at some point they dropped that feature. And I I was like, Oh, this might be the only reason I was getting this magazine (laughs) because I stopped getting it almost immediately.
1: Cause I was like, Oh, if I'm not going to discover something I know about the X-Men.
0: Yeah. I just kind of love it.
1: I love it when you find out that somebody who you think of as a mainstream person is enough of an enthusiast that they like their tastes extend kind of wildly into fringe or indie stuff. Uh, Elvis Costello, the musician, every now and then will do like a list of 500 albums you should own. And he's done it twice, I think. And both times he didn't repeat any albums. Like he just. Wow. You know, Most was, of them are Muppets. He's really into the Muppets. He found yeah. 500 different Muppets albums to recommend. <laughs> no. It was a really strange list. But
0: and a few a few jazz records.
1: Yeah. But you can't deny his enthusiasm. Yeah. Kermit plays Miles Davis was one of his. Yeah. yeah. And a uh, kind of was, green. Yeah. <laughs> Fozzie does uh, Coltrane. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's so like if we, you know that the idea that somebody working at wizard is also like we got to get we got to get people onto cane yeah, yeah <laughs> no but i
0: i remember reading that Kane article and just being like this is so weird or stuff like strangers in paradise um not right. think yeah. they, i don't think they ever did love and rockets but it was that kind of vibe like they had one page where it would focus on the indie stuff yeah um, it's,
2: it's almost like they didn't do the the big indie stuff which could have for sure used the the, the attention love. they went like the next level down because it's not like uh skeleton key was some enormous hit it was Slave labor comics, yeah, I believe. But yeah, yeah,
0: so I guess I was at Newsarama for a long time, and then I saw that Wizard was looking for an associate editor, so I just applied. And i I'd, I'd been in Miami my whole life, so I hadn't really like lived outside of Florida. Um, but they hired me, and I it was that was my first like in the industry like in person day job, which was wow. a cool crash course. And so I kind of got to see how. sausage was made and that's how i really started connecting with people in person in comics like people at dc or talent or creators and um that was around 2003 uh and it's so weird because that felt like such a pocket in time that nobody remembered but now there's even a podcast that just talks about wizard and they've been interviewing like older staff members and it's just been funny to hear them talk about it but um yeah and i was doing a lot of the same things and eventually i moved back home to miami and um started working at the newspaper again. Just um, it, it took me a minute to really get used to the New York weather and just being away from home. So I came back home. And then after that, I got my first full-time like PR gig at DC. And I moved back up to New York. And I was at DC for about five years. And that's kind of when I really had my aspirations to write. It's funny because when comics becomes your your day job, the novelty... I don't want to say the novelty wears off, but it becomes work. Like You're reading. You get a stack. At DC, you would get a stack of every comic of the week, which yeah. sounds awesome, but it also feels like, okay, I need to read. Like,
1: it's homework, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's homework. And so I started to
1: I got to this- read Dr. Fate Gets His Mail number yeah. two <laughs>
0: justice league antarctica again uh, yeah so it became work and that was fine it was a great job and then um i started reading mystery novels for fun and then i was like well i'm gonna write my own and that became i don't know i have a bad habit of making my hobbies into jobs and so that became
1: <laughs> its you own know, thing can we unpack that moment because i don't think it's like okay i'm gonna write my own feels yeah. like a bigger moment than yeah than the way you just presented it yeah you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I don't like I just watched Suicide Squad a couple nights ago. I was like, I'm going to make one of these but that, wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't
0: like my reaction. Yeah, I think I was. Reading I walked a over of... a
1: bridge the other day. I was like, you know what? I'm going to build a bridge.
0: Look at that car. I think I'll make one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I'd always like true crime and mystery novels. And then I started reading more recent stuff like Laura Lippman and Dennis Lehane and George Pelicanos. And a lot of their books were really strong in setting. Like, so if you read a George Pelicanos book, you feel like you're seeing D.C., Washington, D.C. through his eyes and what have you. And I, I just remember thinking, these are great. I wish there was one for Miami. And I think it was a blend of just being homesick, too. Like I was in New York and mm-hmm. Manhattan. I feel like those first few years in New York are brutal. Like you're just it's very you're next really? to so many people, but it's very lonely. Yeah, it just feels very isolated.
1: That's interesting to me. Um, Maybe I, just
0: nobody wanted to talk to me.
1: I, I, I had a lonely experience my first couple of years in New York, but it was sort of outweighed by the excitement, like sort of like the the glamour of walking around, the center of the universe, essentially. Though you had lived near New York your whole life. Oh, yeah. I grew up in uh, Battery Park.
2: No, I grew up in in Connecticut and Boston. Like you were always in like, it's not like you were going to a different climate hours away from family and anyone you knew. You were. Yeah, I
0: just felt like my network was very far away.
1: Alex is weak. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I I am not a strong person and it was very (laughs) sad yeah and so then it just gave me something to think about this idea of doing like a Miami series of crime novels and I I started pecking away at that and um, I think also because I knew I wanted to write comics but at DC at the time it was like if you're doing publicity and you're on staff you can't really like you can't abuse that role because I had to interact with a lot of editors. So I couldn't like be knocking on the door and being like, hey, uh, Mike yeah. Carlin, here's my pitch for Blue Beetle. You know, so you just yeah. couldn't blur that line, which I think is fair. Um, so he gave me an outlet and, um, and then that became its own thing. And so I moved over to Archie and I was there for a long time. And, and Archie was a little bit more less, um, I guess, about staying in your lane. And they said, OK, you want to write a comic here? Write an Archie comic. And that was cool. Was, that, was that exciting? To me, Archie is as popular, I mean, as part of, a bit, as big a part of the pop culture. Like, oh, no, vibe.
1: I, I know you've you left Archie, but I want to take a moment and talk about it because Archie is something that is like so special and mm-hmm. it kind of continually surprises me in terms of its power. I read Archie comics as a kid, not that long. Archie comics was something that like when I went to somebody else's house and they, they had, had a it. stack of comics, there'd be a fairly high number of Archies. Yeah. So I would read them. I, I rarely got them on my own. Then the other thing I realized when I grew up and I became like a harder core comics fan and I would talk to people about comics, everyone, Archie is part of everyone's story somehow.
0: It's like um, you're onboarding.
1: Yeah. But but people say it with a smile and like it has resonance in a way. And I wonder what is that? Like, where does that come from? How, what What did Archie do to occupy this place? And I guess I'm asking you because you spent a fairly long time with your brain on the Archie brand.
0: It brings a lot of comfort especially the classic stories they give you a sense of this idyllic world where you can always resolve your problems in a few pages like everything is handled with some lightness and i think i don't know for me i was was a kid my parents were divorced it was like you know like life was fine it was not it just was nice to read comics where everything was okay i guess not to make it so You know, melodramatic. Like I had a fine childhood; it was nice. But um, you know, it was this idealized world where everyone was friends. You could always rely on your friends. Like, um, and they would have these adventures. It was it was it's comfort food. I think the classic Archie stuff is comfort food. And I think at that point, when I got to Archie, um, the company was looking to revitalize itself. And the CEO, the new CEO at the time, John Goldwater, was really into like pushing the boundaries and making Archie feel relevant and present as opposed to just this retro brand like Popeye or Betty Boop.
2: You were there at the beginning of like when Mark Wade came on and all like sort of mm-hmm. they revamped ev- everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, there was a lot. Um we started bringing in a lot of talent that wasn't really associated with Archie, like Francesco Francavilla did those yeah. covers for Archie Kiss, which was it's such a weird thing that it existed as a comic, but having those covers like really kind of redefined how people looked at the character and they were like, "Oh, maybe it's not just this like I mean, comic I remember strip. Archie
1: Archie would make the news. Like it'd be like, mm-hmm. "Archie's doing stuff." Like first of all, that is a testament to the company's success in do, in getting people's attention, but I also do believe it's that People want to know what's going on with Archie, you know? Oh, there's <laughs> yeah, a homosexual people, character in Archie. That's, that's interesting. Everybody wants to talk about that.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's just a pop culture. It's like Charlie Brown or this kind of thing that's been around so long that people yeah. just want to check in. And when you change that, or it's, and you see it with Marvel characters and DC heroes, like when yeah. Superman gets a new haircut, it becomes a story. And, exactly. And, and I know that from just being on the publicity side. Like when Damian Wayne died, it became a huge story because it's still Robin. You know, yeah, you know, and he came back, and you know, Jason Todd came back. But those moments, like for the mainstream reader or audience, like they don't care about the weeds, they don't care about oh, he'll eventually come back, they don't know the nuance of it yet. Now, I think they're getting used to it, but I think at the time, um,
1: also, I think Damian
0: Wayne maybe was dead for a month, I don't know, (laughs) yeah, like a minute, very quick, yeah, he died, and then Batman started looking for him. And you've you've moved over to Oni. Yeah, I was at I did hop back to DC briefly for a year and change, and then they moved to Burbank, and I wasn't ready to move to California. And I hopped then I returned to Archie, and uh, I was there for I've been cumulatively I was at Archie for about a decade, off and on, with a little brief detour. And um, now I'm at Oni, Oni Press, which is a Portland-based uh, creator-owned company. They do stuff like Scott Pilgrim, Stumptown, lots of really great stories. Weren't and, they Skeleton
1: Key back in the day, kid?
2: And I don't think they've done uh, that Andy yeah. Watson and yeah. stuff. They did Courtney
0: Crumrin, I believe. Yeah, Courtney Crumrin, which is back. and which I loved. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a good group of people. They're really into like diverse and quirky stories, which it's just fun to work with talent that are trying to actualize their visions. You know, it's, it's different than like work for hire stuff where it's like, what's your take on Jughead? <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe, yeah. Right? yeah so it's like more yeah. like an indie house as opposed to a studio i mean oni's yeah. been
2: around a long time now too it's like I, I still think of it like as a newer company but it's been 30 years probably yeah
0: it's 25 years next year yeah which there you is go. pretty close cool, yeah um and yeah and all this is going on and at the same time i'm trying to do this novel writing gig and and writing stuff for archie at, when it made sense like i I would not have expected this, but I ended up carving out this niche as the music guy, like Archie music crossover. So like Archie Kiss, Archie meets the Ramones and, um, and things like that. So that was fun, man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was different because Kiss, we were actually dealing with like Gene Simmons and his, um, and Kiss, like the real people, but it's different with the Ramones because all the, the original four of, passed on so you're yeah. dealing with the estates which is a little more challenging let's, so, let's but, take a
2: short break will oh yeah, and then um then let's transition into talking about amazing spider-man 350 yes i, I concur all right we're gonna take a short break Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or
1: tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. We might read your message on a future episode of our show. So Thanks. In advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. Uh,
2: all right, so uh, you've picked the um, Amazing Spider-Man issue 350, which I didn't realize is Eric Larson's last, at least, regular issue. I don't know if he came back and did any more.
0: This was his last on Amazing Spider-Man. And then he came back and wrote and drew a run on the adjectiveless Spider-Man. I sure, think after right. after McFarlane left, he,
2: he did <laughs> another Sinister Six storyline there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I've read this issue before. Uh, I, this era it was interesting for me because that's kind of in and out for Spider-Man comics. I was—I'd been reading Spider-Man so long at this point that I didn't read all the McFarlane. I didn't read all the Eric Larson, but I like read some. Yeah. Of the stuff. Like, I, I definitely read, like, The Assassination Nation that McFarland did, which is... I don't even remember what happens, but I know I bought those comics. And I definitely yeah, bought you some don't, of... You the don't Eric like to Clarkson read stuff... Air.
1: You don't like to read stuff when it becomes hugely popular. When you, you send something's a phenomenon, you not... Like, yeah. Yeah, just, like, once you got past the DeFalco
2: run, I was... I don't remember who was the last writer before it.
0: Things got really bumpy after DeFalco. And I only remember this because I think around the time my daughter was born... Well, when my son was born, I, re- I read a lot of Stephen King. And I think you read scary things or other things to kind of soothe the stress of being a new parent. But when my daughter was born, <laughs> I ended up rereading all of Amazing Spider-Man from Amazing Fantasy up through. I stalled out right around here. Like I stalled out kind of where I started as a fan. So um, I didn't really I thought it was at my most ambitious. I was like, I'm going to get through Brian brand new day and catch up with the modern title. And I just I couldn't make it. It would have been tough
2: to get through. The Clone Saga and the stuff that followed that uh, even more than the Clone Saga itself.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, that's. I quit com. I quit Spider Man during the Clone Saga just because I was like, they're bringing in another Spider Man, and Ben Riley is the real <laughs> Spider Man. I was like, I'm done. And then I hopped I, over and X Men was doing Age of Apocalypse, and I was like, I'm done with that. <laughs>
2: just I like- think. I think I got knocked out during the Carnage maximum carnage storyline because i'd come back and i was reading some of bagley and then i got to that i was like maybe i just don't want to read spider-man for a while and i don't think i came back again till straczynski which was quite a while i, I, I even the then i would buy like an issue here and there i'm not i'm not, i couldn't go cold turkey every now and then i'd see a cover and buy it read it be like i'm not ready you're yeah I'm, not. you're a junkie
1: would... for these spider-man stuff
2: i am. And then told the tales shivers. Untold Tales Tales kept me going a little bit. So why did you pick this issue, the the 350th issue of Amazing Spider-Man before numerous reboots?
0: And number changes. Yeah, I think um, the first Spider-Man issue I bought with my own money and not really knowing like what was happening in Spider-Man because I'd only really read like a few things here or there was Amazing 348, which is not an ideal jumping on point because it's Spider-Man. Sandman's in it. The Avengers show up. Uh, it was very confusing, but I like the art. I thought Eric Larson, like he drew Spidey, unlike anyone I had ever seen. I had I didn't know who Todd McFarlane was at that point. Do you know and, now? I do now. Yeah, I think he's <laughs> okay. a big deal. I think he's he's an up and comer. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sp- Spawn is a character to watch. As I know your be,
2: If you didn't know about Todd McFarlane, I was going to tell you a little bit about him, but it seems like yeah. you know. Right,
1: so. I'm only into him as a baseball memorabilia collector. I
0: like sure. him as a, to- as a toy guy. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> that might be his um, big industry. Yeah. I mean, that's probably his yeah biggest company. I was hooked at that point, even though I had no idea what was going on. I really liked Eric Larson's art. I think in retrospect, I wasn't that tapped into the story. Like having read David Michelinie stuff apart from Eric Larson, I think it was really Larson's art. No, this is not a diss on his writing. It was just like it was the art that pulled me in. Shots um, fired. Yeah. He sucks. No. Um I was bummed out that Larson left like two issues later, but it was such a great finale. Like three forty-nine is it involves this very obscure Spider-Man villain called the Black Fox, who I had not I mean, even after years of reading Spidey, like I think he shows up like four times. Like he's from yeah. DeFalco's run or around that era. But it's such a great, epic Spidey story. 350 is. It's a throwdown battle. You really you, you get a very awkward Uncle Ben cameo. Um Larson's art is kind of at the top of his game before he becomes like Savage Dragon creator Eric Larson. Like This is, just, I think, such a great way to end his run. Um, I was disappointed at the time because I had no idea who Mark Bagley was. I mean, I didn't know who anyone was, but I, I definitely was really into Eric Larson's art. Yeah, I will say,
2: having because we covered uh, the Sinister Six storyline that Larson did with Michelinie when we had... Um, was it Jordan White did that one? When Jordan White was on, yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, and I remember reading that and I had not read that series before I'd read the, the the next one that Eric Larson wrote Andrew. And I was like, Oh, this art feels inconsistent. Like it's still got yeah. like the Larson dynamic, like energy, but then there's panels where it's like, Oh, this feels like a, a bad, um, anatomy <laughs> like, or just like too mm-hmm. much is going on. And then I read this issue and I was like, Ooh, I did before I realized it was his last one. I was like, Oh, this is Larson now firing on all cylinders. It feels really good. And then I yeah, got I don't know if he page, had a different. Like, oh, he's income. done. He's done. Yeah, okay. then he's gone.
0: Yeah, and then there's that weird pinup that's half McFarlane, half Larson. I don't know if you got that.
2: Yeah, I got that. I've seen that before. I didn't know it was from this issue until I got to it. Uh, that's sort of a weirdly famous pinup, just because of yeah. I, because of image comics. It's got to be. Uh, anyway, I thought the art in this issue. Before we get into like a little more details, was great. I don't know what you thought, well, but
1: I really enjoyed the art. I thought it was good, and Eric Larson is good.
0: I wonder if it's an inking thing too. I forget who inked Larson in the uh, that initial Sinister Six story, but here he's, I think it's, was it Randy, em- Randy Emberlin who inked most of his later amazing stuff and it just looks really tight.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't know who inked him before. I, I mean, also, I don't know how long uh, Larson had been in comics in a little while, but he wasn't like a long tooth vet when he started right. on Amazing. He is still relatively new, I believe. Yeah. And I, I think it was also like twice a month at that time he might have been doing one of those summer runs where it was just the pace might have been crazy, and it probably it does annoy you say, as a reader. G- give me a fill in artist.
0: I always found those really obnoxious as a reader, just because it's just like okay, I have to buy it twice, and the story never felt like it merited like the round robin, the sidekick's revenge. Do you remember that?
2: I do. I I, I think I also dropped out during that. Yeah, like <laughs> there's certain things I'd like read the first couple of parts and be like, oh, I'll come back when this part's over, because that's a, that yeah. was New Warriors, which I wasn't reading, and I know it has its big fan base. We're gonna write in now. Tell me how great they are. Yeah, why do you hate uh, They never Warriors? got hooked. I just never. They never got me. I think. Yeah. I think some of it was just age, uh, both actual age and age in comic reading time. Because I started so young, mm-hmm. I sometimes feel like I read comics like five years older than I should have been. In a weird way, it's like oh, I should have been into New Warriors. Maybe I was only a couple years maybe older than most people reading it, but it felt like I was like you've eh, seen it before. It's, yeah,
0: it's like it's all been done. Yeah, you're already a jaded reader when you picked up your first comic.
2: I put out
1: my cigar on uh, (laughs) (laughs) one and moved on.
0: I liked it when it was called Teen Titans.
1: (laughs) Eric Larson um, needed a separate inker for Mary Jane's hair just to like split the workload. Like one person inked the whole book and then another person inked just Mary Jane's hair.
0: You know, it's so funny because this was my introduction to Mary Jane. And so when I would go back and read like older issues, I'm like, why is her hair like so flat and straight? Like, Like Mary Jane's hair is supposed to be like this... Animal on, you know, like
2: <laughs> um, Eric Larson and maybe McFarland as well. Probably needed like the Dave Sim background artist <laughs> to get through all this stuff, like a secondary artist, a, a farm yeah. team. Uh, I
0: think what I liked about this story though is that it really is a classic Spidey tale. Like against all odds, it. Yeah, let's, let's talk
1: about what that means. Like what is what is, what are the boxes that have to be checked for something to be a an epic Spidey tale?
0: I think he it has to feel like everything is stacked against him and there's no way for him to win. It has to kind of evoke his uh core message with his which is like with with great power comes great responsibility it has to kind of tap into the tragedy of uncle ben and also there also has to be some push pull between peter and spidey so you see it a little bit here where mj's like well you shouldn't go you've got a concussion i'll be very mad at you if you leave like there's a sense that you know his regular life is suffering because he's taken on this job as spider-man and um I mean, Dr. Doom is not like a rogue, like it's it's he's not like electro, he's like a big yeah. cosmic deal. Like yeah. he should very rightfully just have killed killed him in those opening pages.
2: I will say when I read this, I don't love Doom as a Spider-Man villain in general, um, just because he feels he's the FF villain and he feels too big for a Spider-Man adventure in general. So when I started reading this issue, I was like, oh, I don't love Doom in this issue, but by the end I was kind of way into it. Uh yeah, by the even by the midpoint, like basically. By the point when Doom had like got Spider-Man's like, you're going to go find this for me or I will kill you. I was like, yeah, this feels like Doom. I take it there, back. This is
1: great. There, There is a lot of like high emotional stakes in every aspect here. Like um, like almost to a cliched degree, every character's main emotional button is pushed. You got Doom and his mom. Yeah, You've got yeah. Spidey and Uncle Ben, also Spidey and Mary Jane a little bit. And then Spidey just the, and the welfare of the world, right? Like just Spidey, the superhero saving people comes into play at the end when those arcane folks are like doing their thing.
0: That was um, random, but it worked.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what do we say overall the story for the people who are listening? Just like a quick summary of what what this is about. Not like a page by page detailed thing, but just so mm-hmm. that when we talk about it, the, the many people who listen to our podcast and don't read along can be somewhat oriented. Sure, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, so basically, it seems like Spider Man is chasing this uh, thief, the, the Black Fox, who. Uh... He has a kind of mixed relationship with. He he realizes he's a villain, but he also has issues taking him in because he reminds him of his uncle Ben. And I guess the Black Fox has stolen a jewel that is very precious to Doctor Doom, which is uh, I'm blanking on the name. It's some kind of egg that belonged yes. to his his mother. And so Spidey and Doc Doom throw down. Spidey gets really messed the up. The dragon's egg. The dragon's egg. Yes, you're right. And then um, Spidey gets pretty messed up and concussed, and basically says, you know, I'll find this for you don't don't kill the Black Fox. And um, he's given 24 hours and he spends most of that time sleeping, I think. He goes yeah, he goes to, <laughs> to sleep immediately. <laughs> yeah, he immediately goes to sleep, concussed, not a good idea. Um, <laughs> and meanwhile, Dr. Doom is looking out uh, from his penthouse window and counting down the seconds. Like, he's got it down to the seconds, like nine hours. <laughs> <Classic> <laughs> Marvel,
1: A Marvel villain trope is that the villains are extremely precise timekeepers. Like, when we did, uh, Kevin and I did every issue of F- Jack Kirby's FF, F- which was insane. And multiple yes. times, the villains, like, display their prowess by, like, Ah, at exactly yeah. 1.15 p.m. tomorrow, the alarm will go off. Like, <laughs> the, the Mad Thinker does
2: that a lot. And there's a few other guys who also do it. The Mad Thinker's big on timing.
1: Yeah, he's <laughs> got I'm a, a new of, iPhone. A lot of Ditko, like guys who want to run all the mobs, are big on, you need somebody to plan. Like, <laughs> it's a big yeah, threat exactly. in the Marvel universe. Like, who can organize? Like, that is, that is a planner. Yeah. Doom is just showing his uh, bona fides of being yeah. a top
0: Marvel villain. And so then I guess Spidey's grappling with, you know, why why do I have issues bringing in this older older villain? Uh, he's getting some uh, admittedly reasonable beef from Mary Jane about not going out there and being Spider-Man when he's concussed and severely and hospitalized. I think he's hospitalized at one point. Um, and so that feels very classic Spidey, like overcoming your personal issues to then put on the costume and do what's right. And he has a very, um, I thought it was interesting as a kid, but on reread, it, it didn't really land as strongly the uncle ben cameo <laughs> though it is saved by the awkward glances from people who are like this guy's insane
2: yeah <laughs> okay, and, the, and
1: the reflections where you don't see uncle ben yeah that was cool there's some nice stuff in there i, w- I wonder like if there was uh y- you guys as a bit more spidey obsessed to me i don't know why i said that i'm obsessed with him you're better <laughs> informed than me do you know um, who uncle ben is well no, no, no. That's my question. Is he, it's is he it's important to the Spidey? Oh, it's his dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, yeah. he calls him Uncle. It's <laughs> a weird nickname, and well, I get it's it. His re- it's his first And he's name. alive, and everything's great with him. Okay. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think there was a little bit of Spidey origin overkill. Like we've now, we've now entered a phase in like where they won't even say, "With great power comes great responsibility." In yeah. like the movies, or they'll do it as a joke. You know, they'll couch it like in the Spider Verse movie when. The Jake Johnson incarnation of Spider Man won't let the Miles Morales incarnation say it. Yeah, because it's become a cliche, right? Like they know the audience is overloaded with that phrase. But it's when kind of the, the
0: same with like Bruce Wayne's origin or the Batman origin. Like just, exactly, exactly. Everyone like knows it.
1: When when Sam Raimi's Spider Man came out, the origin still had novelty to it, and that's a big part of the first movie. But now it's like that ground is so beaten. So I wonder where it falls here. is it like, is it kind of still got potency to bring out the Uncle Ben card? I assume yes. I think um, because
0: Uncle Ben's one of these characters, like, and I would argue Gwen Stacy was one of them and maybe Bucky at the time, like these characters that even in the era when nobody seemed to stay dead like uncle ben is never going to come back and so it has some meaning to bring him back in some weird way and he's also a character you don't really know that much about like even exactly, over the yeah. years
1: he's like this he, very this he's only important in his absence we don't know yeah. much about him I've, i assume there has been issues up, yeah. but like it's not like very prominent in the spidey story <laughs> i weirdly think this does hit I, I also think
2: comic and maybe you have a feeling in this being uh working at so many different companies like the age range of who reads these comics keeps like inching up. It doesn't rock it up. It doesn't like follow my age, but definitely it was like, it was kids in the sixties at this point. It was like older kids, but I think it's even older now. So I I think like at this time it was, uh, you know, it's probably like 15, 16 year olds reading this. And I think it would hit better for them than it would for like a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 46-year-old in my case.
0: Yeah, I think it lands. I mean, when I read it, I had a rough idea of Spider-Man's origin. And I, I knew who Dr. Doom was because I'd watched those um, early Marvel cartoons that were really just drawings that were moved around, like Kirby oh, love drawings. Oh, we love yeah, those. those love yeah, them. those are cool. Um, so I had an idea of what the weight of it was, but I also didn't know enough to like nitpick it when I first read it. And now, yeah, now I, I could think- nitpick it and it still lands pretty well, I think.
2: I think the Uncle Ben of it doesn't hit as much as the concussion part of it hits. Like It's like, oh, you believe you are talking to him. You're yeah. in bad shape.
0: I think this uh, may have been also the first time I read Spidey's origin, which Larson does in very, very faithful Ditko style.
2: Very Ditko. even put the eyes on spider yeah. uh, uh, shocked look at the burglar's face. Yeah, I, it, being an anniversary issue, being 350, being Larson's last issue, they're selling this as a big deal. Those often include a recap of his origin Like almost required reading to like needily spend a page showing that criminal getaway. So I I think part of that maybe was by design to have that in there.
1: It is funny to see what images he chose. Like he shows Uncle Ben, you know, Feeling grabbing Peter's muscle, which that really, is that is an image that sticks in my mind when I think about Amazing Fantasy 15. A, a really not that important story moment. That is a Uncle
2: frequent ben, shown panel, I would say. I yeah. often see like, that. panel. Oh, don't
1: don't. He's getting too muscular, uh, Aunt May, like a really corny Stan Lee joke that. Maybe doesn't establish anything about the. Care. It's not as important as seeing him bullied by the high school friends, right? in but terms of right. terms of the story, it's also maybe that's one that of the few times
0: you see Uncle Ben. Yeah, that panel and the one ben where he's like mussing like his hair
2: are like the two that I can think of with Uncle Ben. Yeah, waking him up. You're worse than Alive. a room full
1: of alarm clocks.
2: Yeah. yeah. Other than that, Uncle Ben does nothing. He's a bad I think, uncle.
0: Is it wasn't Amazing Fantasy 15? Was it it was also not like a full story? Like it age, was a, ages or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they packed a lot of stuff in. So he basically like just recapped it very succinctly, which was impressive. It's, have
1: you ever read um Alec all the other amazing fantasies, Amazing Fantasy One through 14? I I, I recommend it. Kevin, you have, yeah. right? I've read some of them, not all of them. I'm not crazy like you. I read good comics. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm the, I'm the weird one Man here. I read Spider-Man comics. Hungry. I'm the strange one here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the obsessive. A guy who read yeah. one mystery novel and I was like, I'll write them. And then yeah, goes, I will do my <laughs> own. <laughs> and a guy who's been reading Spider-Man regularly since 1982. So it's interesting to read Amazing Fantasy 1 through 14 because, um, I mean, the is very hit or miss. It's it's mostly kind of tossed off Twilight zone kind of things. There's some really good Ditko art. A lot of it's sort of perfunctory, but thinking about Amazing Fantasy 15, the origin of Spider-Man, you can see them establish, they're basically doing a lot of exercise. That means when it comes time to do Spider-Man's origin, they're ready. Like every story in Amazing Fantasy is like eight pages. It ends with a twist. There's some supernatural element. And so they have to race through exposition. They hit things right on the head of no subtlety in terms of like marriage is ending and like people cheating a lot of tales from the crypt kind of like, yeah, very EC comics. Exactly, exactly. They're ready to do a lot of exposition. They're ready. There. It's very natural to have a twist ending, although that maybe looks a little bit unique to Spidey's origin compared to a lot of superhero origins of the time. But that is the amazing fantasy template.
0: And I don't it, think they knew what they were. I mean, this is this sounds meaner than I intended to. They didn't know what they were doing yet. They didn't realize we are absolutely. creating Spider-Man. Yeah. They we're, did not realize is,
1: the scope of what they were doing. They were like, maybe this will be a popular issue of our. Yeah sci-fi comic. They
2: were but definitely so hoping it to it be a there. feature but beyond that, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so much but, of the core tenets of Spider-Man are there in those pages. Exactly.
1: Though. And so even though they weren't planning on building an empire, right? Yeah. They were not they were not spending the time and care you might if you were like, uh, your whole company's going to be built on this guy." <laughs> yeah. Um but they had they had practiced a template through many, many stories. I mean, like every issue of Amazing Fantasy had like three or four stories, so 14 times for, they had like fifty-six instances of this template, so they kind of were practiced in a inadvertently at doing a yeah, really they were good eight-eight-page packet-in it story. It's really yeah. I recommend it for a Spidey fan. Go back to the old Amazing Fantasies. You, you get you learn a lot about Lee and Ditko that way.
0: Don't you so see like a proto version of Uncle Ben at May at some point? Yes, you absolutely do. I,
1: I forgot about that. I think I read, Aunt, read that. Aunt Ray Edwards. and Uncle
0: Sven. Yeah, something like
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're eating oat cakes. Yeah.
0: The the only thing I think what, you know, it kind of goes a little off the rails for me. I I remember this as a kid. I was like the whole swarm thing, like, you know, where where basically the black fox tracks down the the egg, the dragon's egg to this very not cool ceremony to summon a swarm to destroy Manhattan. Coincidentally, you know, you get the editorial asterisk like this happened in Amazing Spider-Man, whatever. Uh, I remember being confused by that as a kid. And even as now as an adult, I was like, I don't because I don't didn't read those issues but yeah that's the only clunky part and i think the last battle is very lands pretty well you know spidey shows up they team up and then doom shows up and they the the issues are resolved very neatly um and there's a lot of texture there you know the themes are land pretty well
2: yeah they're sort of forcing in some world stakes to make this more than just he gets the gem back yeah from some crooks or whatever
1: um the art's incredible in this battle. Like, it is yeah. extremely fun. Like, Spidey just, like, leaping through laser beams and dodging bullets. And the black that one panel
0: where he's, like, twisting himself and getting shot in every direction is just awesome.
2: I think that's what I'm saying. Compared to the Sinister Six, like, these panels are the ones that would be a little too much in the Sinister Six storyline where uh, I feel like he would be scratching the back of his head with his heel uh, and these, like his legs, are still going way back, but it's just—I it, buy it more. Something about how he draws it; it looks more real. Adam has clearly
0: there. been working out. Like there's that panel when he's like, "Your time is up." Like his arms look like next level.
1: <laughs> I mean, in the Marvel universe, at any point, somebody can become completely jacked with muscles, like without warning. You know, So it's almost can- like
0: he's got a car bumper, and you could envision him just holding him, holding it up front because he looks really different. <laughs>
1: I also,
2: <laughs> one thing that hurts this comic, if anything, is that, that we know more about concussions now.
0: Yeah, that made uh, me sad.
2: Like, I think if, if I read this as a kid, I'd be mad that Mary Jane was like not letting Spider Man be Spider Man, which I do. I've talked about this with Will before. I find Mary Jane in this era had, when uh, the wife Mary Jane had this issue, is they kept making her say, don't be Spider Man, stay home and be safe, which I understand. But like, don't ever make the female lead of your book say, don't do the cool thing.
0: Yeah, don't this do the not thing fun. that the book is titled.
2: Yeah, it's like we want her to support him and be like, all right, if you really think you can do this, I know you can do it. Like we want that sort of character for her. But now that I know so much about concussions, I'm like, she's 100% right. You're going
0: to die. You should have stayed in the hospital. And um, there. I think also a lot of it is that I, I'm sure you guys remember this is like the pivot from Mary Jane uh, being ex-girlfriend who's now showing up again in Pete's life to being his wife is like a three-issue span. You know, oh, there's yeah. that sequence where he goes back to Pittsburgh, and then I guess she – I think they just wanted to expedite it because um, they were doing the, the wedding in the comic strip. Yeah, yeah, I could were, be wrong.
2: It's something like uh, that. That's definitely – it was very fast when they decided to bring Mary Jane back. He had proposed to her, and she had left. So yeah, well, it and then there was a
0: long period where she was gone. Yeah. Like maybe five to ten years where she was not in the comic.
2: They definitely rushed the marriage, and I, I definitely – was of the opinion for a while that like, Oh, they never really wrote the marriage. Well, they shouldn't have ended it. But now I'm of the opinions. Like they should never have gotten her. They should never have been married. I think he's better single. I like Mary yeah. Jane as sort of his ex like, who knows him. Well, yeah. Yeah, either doesn't knows him well, or like, I don't know the one he's going to end up with eventually, but we're just never going to tell that story. Uh You know, yeah. almost like the last season of friends, Ross gets back with Rachel, but we're not going to do that to the end. Cause we don't want to tell that story. That's yeah. not what we're telling here. Yeah. And there is no end. We don't want to tell the married stories. Uh, like like that's for Elseworlds and and what Ifs and what whatever they're called.
1: Um, I think the
0: reason it works with something like Superman is because Lois Lane has her own career. I mean, not that Mary Jane doesn't have a career, but Lois Lane is her own character. And in, in terms yeah. of she Lois can Lane be part of the story,
1: introduced to us as a associate of Clark Kent and and yeah. a reporter at the Daily Bugle, like. She had ways of interacting with the story beyond needing to be rescued by Superman. Although that was part of it, I also think Mary Jane's relationship with Peter
2: Parker is weirdly stronger uh, pre-marriage is stronger than Lois Lane's with Clark. Because like pre-marriage, Lois Lane was mostly, especially in those old comics, I got to figure provey Superman. Like it was all about. Like I gotta find out who Superman is and find out who Clark Kent is, or get Superman While to marry.
0: Clark away, like stop bothering me. Yeah, i it was on, like something serious. It was
2: too cartoonish. When she started being written well, it was like, well, now they're they're almost already together. Like, right it, 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 now, it no longer is a factor of them not dating. It that doesn't matter to her. Like, where Mary Jane was sort of like, I don't know, she just seems to work better. I'm not explaining it well, but I think Mary Jane just works better as not married to Peter than Lois Lane worked. To, like if Lois Lane's not married to Clark, we don't even need Clark in the story. <laughs> but if yeah, Mary Jane's Jerry, not with Parker, then we 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 need both of them. Or we're not gonna. We don't want Mary Jane alone. Basically. Yeah.
0: Jerry Conway wrote a great story where he kind of revealed that Mary Jane knew all along that Peter oh, yeah. was Spider Man, and it added story. so much texture to mm-hmm. the yeah. whole thing. Um, I wish it yeah, was
2: known all along because I think she'd have been an even better character in like the uh, the old comics if like. It was written with a subtext oh, that man. she knew. If like in the, the John that- remita
1: era, if we, we see that Mary Jane sees him crawl into his house as Spidey and then holds that secret forever, that's pretty awesome. Be yeah, incredible. so when I
0: reread this stuff, I kind of had that in the back of my mind. It was really an interesting filter to read those older comics with because you it changes the dynamic. And I know, I mean, that's when a retcon makes sense. Like that, yeah. that's when it works. When you can kind of – Jeff Johns does this a lot too. He like threads a needle that ties into everything that happened before and doesn't negate it but adds – nuance to it it's it's hard every
2: every time mary jane was sort of okay with peter like running off and they generally played it was like she just didn't care yeah she's like a party girl but i was like oh that's because she knows why he's running off and she just doesn't want to she doesn't want to give him more pressure yeah it wasn't the case but i like that thinking of just sort of like mary jane's being like oh you can't stay and party that's too bad tiger Uh, as opposed to like where are you going why are you leaving what's happening
0: and that's the tonal change you see when she. when they're married, it's like then she becomes the worrying spouse when I think... Yeah, she starts yeah.
2: smoking for a while even. And I, I, that really made me... Kevin hates like,
0: smokers. I do I hate smokers, that.
2: but I hate like the storyline of Mary Jane smoking
1: because of anxiety. I'm just like, oh, this is not a fun character.
0: <laughs> yeah, things just got real.
1: <laughs> now, does this comic still do it for you, Alex, when you're reading it? Are you like, oh, man, I love it? Like, does it still... Yeah,
0: you know, I, was, I, was, I went in not expecting that because uh, I hadn't read it since... I was that age, and I it was. It's a fun romp, and it kind of evokes it ends the character. Strong. Yeah, it's a strong ending. Peter evolves like the, uh, I guess the illusion of change happens in a good way. Like you feel like, oh, things are moving forward, even though nothing's really changed. I think Doom is really badass, and he's not. Sometimes I find that. In Spider-Man stories, a cosmic villain is brought in and suddenly Spidey can play on that level, which always struck me as wrong. Like Spidey stories are best when he's definitely the underdog and just can't hack it. Like like that's why the Fire Lord story is cool or Juggernaut. Like he's just out of his league and yeah. this one lands in that space. Um, and Doom doesn't lose anything by fighting Spider-Man. He's still Doctor Doom, you know. Do you still
1: do you like get excited when there's a new Spider-Man movie? Like is Spider-Man still your guy to some degree or what is your relationship to this character? Do you hate him? Do you just think he's a total dumb idea?
0: <laughs> <What> is- <laughs> I, I don't read him anymore. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, <laughs> I love, I he's still my favorite Marvel character. Uh, you know, after that reread of, you know, and it, I, I say reread, but there were a lot of issues I missed and I took some detours. I read a lot of the Spectacular Spider-Man stuff I hadn't read. Um, and reading it all in sequence was really interesting to see just, there's some low points, you know, there's some eras like the post-Defalco era was particularly wonky. Like you just, there's just, was just a lot of confusion as to wh- who Spider-Man was but yeah he's still like the everyman and he still works for me he's still like my favorite marvel character
2: it's crazy to me that there's ever eras where like the most important character in the marvel universe didn't have like the best writer and artists
0: yeah i think it, comics were just a different thing man
2: you know but you would just think it's like well oh wait to leaving let's get somebody good on who wants yeah. it everyone should want it we should offer it up we- to everybody and everyone should be like oh we all want to write spider-man but maybe it's because there was too many titles and it was uh, i don't know
0: yeah, I think there was just some uh, editorial stuff going on. but Defalco's run was so solid too that it was it's hard to follow. Like you had the stern run, which to me is like the high point of that era. and then mm-hmm. Defalco kind of continued it. He I, I would you know he's he's just such a solid writer.
2: Yeah, especially that run. I think he came back a little later and didn't do as well. but like his run with friends was really I think very underrated.
0: Yeah, I think the Clone Saga stuff was just challenging from many James. angles.
2: <laughs> I mean, even James Demadis was on that, and I was still like, "I'm out." And I love
0: James' stuff. Yeah, no, I reread Craven's um, Last Hunt, which still holds up, and then his spectacular. I think James' uh, spectacular run after that was is so very good. underrated. Yeah, you know, the travel so within and all that,
2: and uncollected. Uncollected, yeah. It's not on it's Marvel true. Unlimited. It's not in trade, except for I think maybe issue two hundred with the and that, death that of death Harry scene, Osborne, Yeah,
0: that was so intense.
2: Like. But everything leading up to it, The Child Within, I think is what it's called, is a really, really great. It's sort of like a thematic sequel to Craven's Last Hunt. It's so good.
0: Yeah, I almost picked that. I almost picked the 200, Harry's Death. But I also felt like that would need a lot more ramping up. And this felt like a good one-off.
2: Self-contained thing. Yeah. This feels truer to the era of when you started reading comics. Yes.
0: This was definitely like one of the first comics I remember buying. And um, there was another issue that's not many people talk about or a two-part series that uh, Kurt Busaic wrote with Sal Buscema about this new villain called Corona, which now the name has some added <laughs> stigma to it. So I didn't, I didn't go there, but that was a great, great little arc.
2: Yeah, Kirk like wrote a lot about uh, the 2020 pandemic back then it was, <laughs> people didn't like it at the time and he was
1: trying to warn us we just did yeah, no.
0: setting the table
1: so this is an interesting question because you're a professional in the industry but like to say like what comics do you read like as a fan like there's probably a lot of comics you read like as part of your job but like anytime alan moore does a comic my head goes up i don't always get him i don't always like them but i you know he always gets my attention for example yep. who's special to you Spidey obviously it sounds like.
0: Yeah, Spidey definitely Claremont I think was so influential his X-Men run I, I go I've gone back and reread it a couple times and I just love the you know just I keep saying texture but I feel like he layers so many things like it's a very novelistic approach to writing comics, which I think is now commonplace, but at the time was new. What else have I been reading? I love Chip Darsky stuff is great. I think he he really gets Spider-Man and, and his Daredevil stuff has been a lot of fun. Um, he
1: has such a great sense of humor, I think, is a huge weapon of Chip's. Like he's just genuinely funny person.
0: Yeah, my friend Preeti and I did a very short-lived Spider-Man podcast I think was about three episodes long. And we, <laughs> we basically just talked about Chip's Spider-Man stuff, like his spectacular run. And then we... we th- we kind of stopped after that just because that was... I think we just realized we wanted to talk about Chip's spider <laughs>
1: you, And you did it and that was...
0: <laughs> and that was it, yeah. And that yeah. Was did, it. You,
2: did you work on him with the Jughead book or is that somebody else? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, he reached out to me at Archie and he was like, I'd love to do a variant cover. And I passed him along to Mike Pellerito, who's the, is still the president there at Archie. And I was like, I think Chip would be great for Jughead. And that's kind of what happened. And then he got paired up with Erica Henderson and just did some magic stuff. And Chip great- and I yeah he's he's just fantastic i have really been liking spider's shadow because he really gets he's one of these guys that knows the continuity so well but can add heart to things that would otherwise seem like just exercises and filling in the gaps you know like
2: yeah Spider shadow for will and listeners who don't know is like a what if mini series that's basically what if spider-man kept the black costume mm. uh, instead of letting uh, reed take it off of him when he was discovered to be a symbiote. It's really fun. I also think what ifs work better as a, it was just a smart move to be like, let's make this what if story six issues long instead of crammed just into a, a single off. 20 pages. Yeah. Because I liked the idea of what ifs, but I would always read them and just feel like this I just wasn't knocked count. over by text. It was just too yeah. heavy. I was like, ah, I don't,
1: none of it really sinks in. It was too much. I guess uh, Dan Slott's Superior Spider-Man, which Kevin and I just read in full, um, is in a weird way a what if. It's not. It happened. But I mean, like it's like a very strange yeah. premise fully explored, yeah. you know, for 31 issues.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I always check in on what, how Spidey's doing and, and I, I try to read a lot of image and different indie stuff. Like, uh, I really like Copra, which is this Michael Fief um, yeah, comic. Yeah. that's basically, it's kind of like his take on the suicide squad, but it's, it's so much more than that. I'm, I'm really underselling it. And, um, I always try to keep tabs on Batman. I love the Snyder run and Tom King's run. Yeah. And Anything, I've been trying, about, I've been reading Sinister War as well.
1: And here's a weird unrelated, what mystery novels would you recommend?
0: Read all of mine. <laughs> um, the only ones worth reading. Yeah. There's some great um,
2: black. I wish I, could, I, I wish I could recommend something else, but mine are the only
0: good ones left. Yeah. The only good ones are mine. Yeah. <laughs> blacktop wasteland which came oh, out last my year is fantastic and his new one sean cosby's new one razor boy tears is arguably better um what else have i been reading uh there's this book called these toxic things by rachel housel hall which just came out through um amazon's publishing house thomas and mercer which is a great thriller um and i i hate to say this it sounds very like i'm cool, but I I read a lot of stuff before it comes out. And one of the books that are coming out early next year called Like a Sister by uh, Kelly Garrett is a really fun domestic suspense thriller. And um, Mm. it feels a lot grittier than that genre usually gets. Like usually domestic suspense is very um, suburban feeling, but this has got a lot more, it's edgier, but without being too bloody or violent.
2: While we're talking about books, do you want to talk about your book that's about to come out or maybe is out? Uh, It comes out in
0: March. Yeah, it's called Secret Identity. It's, It's set 1975 new york in the comic book industry and it's it's about this woman who moves from miami to new york to work in comics and that's her dream but Mm. she doesn't get the opportunity it's there's like just a lot of sexism at that time it's a very male-driven industry and her boss she becomes a secretary at this um third rate publisher called triumph comics and um she keeps pitching her boss and her boss says look i can't i just can't give my secretary a a a writing gig and so she ghostwrites this new issue this number one issue with a colleague at the company and it becomes a hit that uh it's called The Legendary Links, and it gets really popular, but then her collaborator is murdered, and nobody knows that she's writing it, and so um, she has to put on this amateur sleuth hat and solve the, the crime. Um Ooh not just to figure out who killed her friend, but also to kind of reclaim this idea. Um, and at the same time, there's, there's comic book sequences in the novel that are kind of told from the perspective, told, they're, they're the comics she creates. Like illustrated? Illustrated, yeah. Sandy Jarrell, who has done a bunch of great stuff like Meteor Men and uh, you know um, DC Bombshells and uh, Reggie and Me at Archie and a bunch of variant covers at Archie. And um, he does those sequences. And so they're told, you, you're basically reading the comics she creates while reading the novel about the movie. Oh, interesting. Mystery. Yeah. So it's called Secret Identity. It's coming from Flatiron Books in March.
2: Now, uh, it doesn't sound realistic that someone could move from Miami and get into the comic book industry. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah that's that seems like idea. a stretch. I, I don't like know. You know, I was idea. like,
0: I really like sci-fi, so I kind of tapped okay. into my passion for like unrealistic <laughs> things. Yeah. All right. So. Well,
2: I don't think anyone's going to buy that part Yeah. Of it. Uh, the rest of it sounds uh, like uh, real. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah I work. hope people dig it. Yeah.
2: That's cool. That's really cool that you're sort of merging your two worlds. Into a novel.
0: Yeah, I just put all my passions into one thing, so I really have nothing else to contribute to the literary if the, landscape. If the, after that, if they go to
2: a <laughs> if they go to a Ramones concert in there, you've got it all.
0: There is a there's yeah, it's in the 70s in New York, so
2: yes, yeah, so they, they just need to be a sequence at CBGBs.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, they run into this writer named Daleks Bigora, and it's like really cool. Daleks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what if your What if your other you've, you've written a number of books? What's Tell me one that I should read. So, so the needs late. a book
2: that is generally age range 10 to 12. Oh
1: yeah, my reading uh, level is, um, <laughs> it's poor. No, um,
0: yeah, so just read a note. I wrote this article. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want, like, in terms of comics, The Black Ghost is this kind of superhero noir I wrote that is, uh, touches on a lot of things in my life, like journalism, crime fighter, comics, uh, Miami, and also is a love letter to kind of those, like, vigilante heroes, like The Question and Daredevil. Uh, in terms of novels, like I wrote a PI series, a private eye series set in Miami. That was the one that kind of started my writing novel career, I guess. And so if you had to hop into one, if you weren't reading them in order, I would read Blackout, which is the fourth one and kind of like the the most high stakes one, I think.
2: All right. Does Now, Pete Fernandez, that's that character, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Now, I haven't read them and I apologize It's okay. For that. No worries. Is he sober in it, all of them or, or is it? I know he had an, uh, he has an. He has an alcoholic He's an alcoholic. Uh, yeah, at least he's in an the alcoholic. beginning he
0: has, he has, at the beginning. Is the that first, am I spoiling the
2: first... this series? <laughs> no, that, no he gets sober.
0: Oh, I think in in the second book, he he kind of gets his stuff together. Mm-hmm. But um, I, there's not without fit, not without stumbling.
2: I
1: bring that up just because I think Will is interested in that idea of people overcoming alcoholism yeah, and addiction. Yeah, I'm a sober things. person, so. I like that stuff. And I also am a detective and I tell nobody about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think I try to uh, be very realistic in that journey. You know, he definitely doesn't just like say, you know, what always bothered me about those kind of stories is that from one day to the next, it's like I went to a meeting and now I'm fine. And that's not yeah. really how it works. So, <laughs> right, yeah. Right, it, yeah, right. yeah. So I think I think you'd enjoy it.
2: I will say, like, uh, I, re- I read some of those. I've obviously read um, Mike. Yeah. Well, I, I read the Parker series and I'm currently reading the Spencer detective books. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he drinks a lot and yeah. definitely have someone who's grown up with alcohol, uh, alcoholism in their families. Like, sometimes you read this, like, you're drinking too much.
1: This is, yeah, it really this is bothers real me. It's a
0: real, it's a trope of crime fiction. Or
1: Mad Men think... is insane. Like, uh, yeah. yeah like, I think there was some advertising company that tried to drink as much as Don Draper drinks, is shown and he died. drinking. <laughs> And uh, and all all those people died. Uh, And it was like, you can't function at work. Like, this is just like, you can't, like, you can't have three gin drinks before noon and, like, be doing a great presentation at, like, at 1 (laughs) p.m. or something like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, no, uh, this is a big
0: trope in crime fiction. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. The Spencer book I just read, he gets drunk, I think, to do something because he he doesn't want to do it. And I was like, like, I don't think you could you wouldn't be able to take this. He like goes to fight somebody. I'm like, you'd lose this fight. You're way too drunk, Spencer. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the series. Uh, It's it's a really fun books, but that aspect of it it knocks me out.
0: Yeah. And the Pete books, I try to be as realistic as possible. I think that at the beginning of the second book, he just gets his, he gets beat up really badly because he's hammered and he tries to get into a situation where he's trying to save the day and he just, it's just not realistic and that's what bothered me even reading like stuff like Raymond Chandler, like Philip Marlowe, like he'll that's, have like,
2: that's the name I was searching for.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he'll have like five or six gin drinks and then be like, oh, then I solved the case and it's that's not really how it works. <laughs> and, and I, I think,
1: I, I sometimes wonder with that stuff, like with the Dashiell Hammett stuff and the, um and the, uh, like he's, and the Chandler stuff, since Prohibition was in the 20s and alcohol was banned, uh, and then it sort of came roaring back into legal fashion in the 30s. But like these these books are written around that time, like the Maltese mm-hmm. Falcon came out in the 20s, I think. I wonder if like alcohol had a sort of more edgy thing, like it was a way to signal, hey, this person skirts the rules and is cool. And yeah. so, you know, they leaned on it a little bit to kind of make them rough and ready in a way and that part doesn't translate anymore because it is alcohol has been legal for so long and is so commonplace and as there's other drugs that that yeah. have the shorthand of willing to do a little forbidden you know what I mean it might be like somebody has to like microdose now if there was like if there was like a micro dosing detective that might be what it felt like to have Sam Spade throwing back a highball. I you know, I I'm totally guessing Chandler, nobody has said that, but like so like we we look at like the health impacts and sort of the psychological impacts of heavy drinking, but in the 30s, it just meant that you were cool. We don't right. need to look at it beyond yeah, that.
0: And I think also Chandler was just such a great writer that sometimes you get lulled into it. You're just like, Wow, his prose is so good that you forget, like, wow, Marlowe is really knocking him back. Like you don't think <laughs> right, about right. It. you're just like caught up in the word choice. You right When, when the it.
1: story has swept you up, you forgive all the logistics. I, I watched Star Wars recently, and it's like Luke is so dismayed by the death of Ben Kenobi. But I think he's known him three days, like when yeah. that happens. Uh, and he's way more distraught by the death of Ben Kenobi than he is by seeing the charred remains of the people who raised him.
0: He got over that really fast. Yeah, yeah. Like
1: you'd, <laughs> And I'm not the first person to point that out. But like, you don't notice it because the story's is great. Us, yeah. The viewer have way more investment in Alec Guinness. And so it totally works. Never bumps at all. And there is, of course, something like that. Like,
2: yeah, it's only like the hundredth viewing that you're like, wait a second.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, The the drinking is not the
1: story. The drinking is not the story in in the Raymond Chandler novels. Yeah, Yeah,
0: you're just there for kind of the vibe, the noir vibe.
1: It's just as
2: important as like the light coming in through the blinds and the and the smoke wafting in the air. Exactly. Yeah, but that I think that's a cool part of the Pete Fernandez books from what I've read about them. Like that idea that you sort of deal with him trying to become sober and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, and it's not a it's really not, it's cool not a angle.
0: linear it's not a linear journey like he doesn't just get better. It's like it's he definitely works on himself. It's I'm something so in
1: his life that he deals with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, that felt to me as a writer just to treat it like more human, more authentically and not like. Yeah,
1: man. The big issues people have, they don't get they kind of never go away. Yeah, they don't go away. Right. Times when you got them under control, times you don't and times when you're better about it. You know, it doesn't have to be something as dramatic as alcohol. It could be somebody's issue with eating habits. It could be somebody's Mm -hmm. issue with intimacy like. Mm -hmm. Yep. Whatever your thing is, yeah, you don't you don't just knock it back so' got've yeah, got, Will's got
2: all those issues's got them all.
1: I'm just yeah you work Miami into all your stories. <laughs> I, I I work uh, huge character flaws
0: <laughs> yeah that, that's your vibe.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we should wrap up. This was fun. Yeah, is there anything you wanted to plug that we didn't that we didn't get to? Uh-
0: yeah, Secret Identity comes out in March. I think if you like comics or you like crime novels or like neither, you will like this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow! So everybody, okay? Great. Yeah, All it's right. for everyone. <laughs>
0: That's um, the big well- thing. I'm always doing some stuff. So I'm actually writing a comic for NPR, which is uh, a weird thing to say, but there uh, that'll come out towards the end of this year and it's a public domain hero called Microface and Jamal Eigel is doing the art and Jerry Ordway who's like a, a legend redesigned sure. the character so oh wow yeah. it's a public domain hero that um, they, they picked up and he's got audio powers and so it's like <laughs> a legacy it's a very DC vibe like 80s yeah. DC like a legacy hero like the grandson of the golden age hero takes over the mantle
1: uh,
2: Jamal Eigel's great that's a,
1: a good get yeah Jerry, he's fantastic Jerry Ordway that's some serious prestige yeah, Jerry Ordway is phenomenal
0: yeah, no, he's um, a legend. Yeah,
1: really fun. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview, Alex. We're so thrilled to have you on. You, you, you've you've shouted us out before, and we love your social media presence. You're a nice oh, guy thanks. and a talented guy, and we really just appreciate you being a talented and good person.
0: Yeah. Yeah, know. I love to- the podcast. It's it's been it's so I was just such I was so hooked when you guys were doing the Ditko stuff because I was mm-hmm. in the same boat. I think we were all reading them again together, and that played a big part in why I started rereading those books. So I
1: still love them.
2: Well, I hope you write something someday. Maybe. Yeah, I might try. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, and we'll talk to you uh, at least through social media and emails again soon.
0: I'm changing all my handles. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> nice knowing you. <laughs> Keep in touch. Yeah, no, this is great. Thanks, guys.
2: So I think that went well, Will. I don't think you embarrassed I mean, yourself
1: too much. Yeah, not too much. I mean, a little bit. I look like an sure, idiot, yeah. but not. Nah, I didn't go over the line.
2: You fell down three times during the interview. Yeah, I don't you.
1: think that comes up in audio, but it was a bad thing to watch. I have a carpeted apartment. Otherwise, it would have been very distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that interview. Um, Alex is on Twitter, and I really like, I said this at the end of the interview, but I, it's weird to maybe say this, but I like his Twitter presence. Yeah, um, Not that I think everyone needs to be a total sweetie sweetheart all the time, But it's just nice when people uh, let their enthusiasms show on Twitter. And Alex is one of those guys who does that. Um, He's Alex underscore Segura. uh, If you want to follow him on Twitter. Um, Yeah.
2: Social media is such a nightmare sometimes. And there's such negativity that it's nice when there's nice people there to sort of balance it out as well. Uh, So it's nice to see that. Yeah. Alex underscore Segura. Um, he, and he, if you you know if you follow him, he'll also promote his books and stuff that he talked about a little bit. His next one, as he said in our interview, is "Secret Identity" coming out in March. I think March fifteenth. Uh, that sounds like a really cool book.
1: Um, yeah, that sounds really cool. It's uh, about a, a woman who goes from Miami to New York in 1975 to be a comic book writer, but then gets wrapped up in a mystery. So it combines a lot of Alex's interests: uh, Miami and mm-hmm. comics and crime. So I bet you that's going to be a great one. Also, it's the year I was born, so that's probably mentioned in the book. I assume that factors in pretty heavily to the setup. Yeah. It's got to—they've they've, got to make a detour through Parma uh, Hospital. Yeah, they got to out set my birth. birth. Let's set the context of your birth. That's mm-hmm. one of the most important events of 1975. Not the 1976 Olympics. Not the upcoming bicentennial of America. Yeah, upcoming the, 76. Those things are not important. Not Watergate or Vietnam, which mm-hmm. just happened. The birth yeah. of Kevin Hines. That's right. Um, I wonder if any of the characters go to see the movie Rocky. That's the year Rocky came out. Probably not. They're probably too busy buying gifts for the new baby, me. Yeah, you had sort uh, of a we three kings situation, right? Where people right. would just show up at Parma yeah. Hospital yeah. and drop off like spices and stuff like that. It was nice. It was nice. Do I you wish it it? St-
2: yeah, I do. I wish it mm-hmm. still happened. It feels like my birthday happens and I rarely have many kings
1: stop by. No, not many kings at all. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we hope you enjoyed this interview. We got to, We have some other interview. I forget when we're going to release this in our schedule, but I assume yeah. that this is in the middle of it and there are going to be some more interviews after this. And we're still doing mailbag episodes where we discuss, uh, the X-Men. Oh, yeah. So if you want to email us, email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com. Please send us email. It helps us do our mailbag and mutants episodes so we can move forward along the Chris Claremont mutant stories. Mm-hmm. And then I also read email from folks. Yeah. Um, that's all I got. Well. That's all I got, too. So uh, we'll see y'all next episode. Bye. Bye. Screw it.
2: talk
1: about comics. Hello, listeners of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics.
0: Are you ready for a promo?
1: My name is Muriel, and I love true crime.
0: I'm Nick, and I am not a fan of true crime.
1: Every week on our new podcast, Muriel's Murders, I handpick a real-life crime story that I think will blow Nick's mind.
0: Muriel is really enthusiastic about researching and telling me these stories, and boy, they are a lot.
2: Some of them are famous. Some of them are weirdly under the radar. But all of them contain
1: crime, violence, and murder from across history and around the globe. How does that make you feel? Nicky.
0: Nervous. Are you ready to hear a story? No. Too bad.
1: Here comes Muriel's Murders.
0: So join us every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the original Muriel's Murders animations on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok at Muriel's Murders. Campfire.